episode of Rick's Random Ramblings, the podcast about uh, popular culture and comics. I'm your host, Rick, and this is episode uh, 17. Um, hope everyone had a fantastic um, Thanksgiving. Um, I'm sure it was a hell of a lot better than mine. Mine was um, mine was a bit of a roller coaster. I had uh, I had work and I uh, had Thanksgiving Day. Unfortunately, uh, my employees showed up to their shift, so I did the most natural thing to do, and I closed up shop. Um, the higher-ups weren't happy about it, obviously, but well, what else can you do? But the most important thing was one of my friends showed up to the job, and uh, he took me to see uh, the Joker, because that was, uh, was really nice of him. It really did improve my day, so went to work with no, nothing felt like a giant waste of my time but it was um it was pretty good i love that movie by the way it, it was it was fantastic um i was just cringing the whole time because you could um i don't want to point some po- i don't want to talk about any type of spoilers or anything like that but you could really like you could feel this character's life fall apart little by little and they do it like in Every like new scene, something about his uh, personal life or his work life begins to fall apart, little by little, and you know accumulates this very great big event at the end of the film, and I think it's all a very very nice payoff. I think it's very well written. Um, the performances by the whole cast are all amazing. Nothing but great stuff from that movie. Uh, I really hope they don't make a sequel. I don't want a sequel from it. I just want it as a standalone movie. Leave it like that. I, I miss that about movies. Just not every movie has to be uh, a duology or a um, a saga or a trilogy. Sometimes you can just have just films that are just that, just one-offs. But I think uh, I think that's probably the best for it, especially for a movie like this. I think this is more. This isn't just about the story. This is more about uh, a guy like you and me who's just struggling with life. Like he just gets pushed uh, too far, and I think that's that's all it really needs to be. That's it. And other than that, I um hung out with some friends and stuff like that. That's about it. You know, we played lots of magic. Got to Pokemon. Yeah, I've been working on. Some art projects here and there. Um, I watched some more X X Men cartoon. We watched um, Enter Magneto. It's a two part episode. Um, fantastic. I I love nineties um, X Men by the way. Um, it's a great cartoon. Um, just in general, you probably heard me talk about it before, but that episode especially, all of Magneto's dialogue, they're all so great, and so is Professor Xavier's. Like the the conversations that they have with each other. It's it's all just fantastic. I also love that the uh, the X Men were not strong enough to beat Magneto in that episode. It was like they got their butts kicked the whole time. Like the Sentinels, when they fought them, it wasn't like a huge deal. It was like they were hard, but they weren't. They were definitely beatable. But someone like Magneto, like even if you beat Magneto, he still has his personal beliefs that like that are with him. Like like his ideas. You can't kill that an idea. You can't stop uh, like a movement with like your 
bare hands. I mean, the X Knight can't punch. Like, e even if you do beat him, that's 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 dumb. Um, it's just a really cool thing. I think I think this is really interesting, and throughout the whole episode, it's just trying to convince the X Men that Professor Xavier is wrong, and I just really love how at the end of the episode, the X Men foil his plan, but he gets away, and the whole episode he was trying to get the X Men to join him. And then finally, he has this uh, this little monologue where he uh, he says that the X Men are not his enemies because it's obvious that uh, Xavier has uh, pulled them too close to him, and he, they're not going to be able to be swayed. I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool, but um, it was really great. And the episode after that was even probably even better. It was a uh, nonstop, um, just really cool. Also love the parts of Beast in the prison. It's great stuff. Um, so he starts sounding a bit like Martin Luther King Jr. It's kind of funny. Like Rosa Parks, some some character like that. I thought that was really funny. I thought it was really cool. Um, you know, as a kid, it's so funny. I, I never noticed any of these things. I just thought, like, oh, no, Beast is in jail. How's that? How's he ever going to get out? And, you know, he's in the courtroom. He's trying to uh, get on bail. And I never noticed that his lawyer was Cameron Hodge. Cameron Hodge in the comics is um, the best friend uh, and former colleague and roommate of uh, Angel. And um, later on in the books, you find out he's actually like a supervillain. And he's actually like, he actually hates Warren's guts and he thinks they're going to be inhaled. And he was just pretending like this whole time. And I think it's really cool. I don't, I can't really remember if they ever explore that in the uh, cartoon. I'm still in the middle of watching some of the series. I kind of watch it on and off here and there on Disney Plus, of course. And um, it's just really cool. I really do like it. Um, the next episode, they fight Sabretooth alongside Magneto. And again, I, I love that, they again, the X-Men could not beat Magneto using, like, that one foe. Like, he's so strong. And now, when you really think about it, like, in the comics, I don't think the X-Men ever actually beat Magneto. I think they were more of, like, they would foil his plan, but Magneto would just, like, kick their butts and then, like, leave. Because he's like, well, I guess I gotta plot something different and do it again. Especially in the early appearances. Um, yeah. Come to think of it, because in the original X-Men run, uh, in the 60s, I don't think they ever actually, they never really did beat him. I remember that one very, uh, it's very fresh in my mind, because I was, I've read that series, like, a million times. And, uh, usually it was by some kind of coincidence that, um, like the building around them was like falling and Magneto's like, alright, time to dip. Or, uh, Asteroid M was like crashed down to the earth or something like that. And I think the only time he was really defeated was with the stranger. He's this giant alien that's capable of like anything. And there was, um, yeah, and then he was defeated. He, the only time he was probably defeated was probably, probably defeated by the Defender. And, um, Defender's number something. I can't remember. 12, something like that, they fought the Brotherhood of Mutants, and that was, um, I think it was Blob, Mastermind, and Toad, I think those are the four, I think, that, that era is a bit, weird to me, I'm not, not really big on the, um, on the 70s comics as much, unless it's like X-Men, but, uh, he didn't come back to, like, X-Men 100 something, and by then he was, um, they made he'd be going down again by Eric Red. It's a bit of a tangent. 
But anyway, my point is, um, I don't think they ever should beat him because he kicked their butts, and he was free appearance, and I think Ekma won it too. And then they went to Mir Island. He escapes because he beats all the X-Men because the new X-Men, like Nightcrawler, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, and uh, Banshee, that team of X-Men, they're all weak against uh, Magneto can manipulate their powers in some form or fashion. Um, and he beats them, except for like Banshee. Banshee's the only one that can actually like stand a chance against them. But my point is, he gets away, and then you see him, I think, on and off, like once or twice, and like in the background, in the all least issue 150, where the X-Men seem to fight him, but he stops because he realizes that Kitty Pride is not only Jewish, but also just a child. She's wearing a mask, so you couldn't tell. Go figure. He probably thought she was just like a short X-Men or something. I don't know. But it was um just great. It was just great stuff. Uh, but that's my point. They never actually beat him, and I love that they translated that into the cartoon so nicely. That was a bit of a tangent. I apologize, but I just really love Magneto. That's, that's what I'm really trying to get at. I love Magneto as a character. It's very interesting to me. Very awesome. Um, let's see. What else did I do? Yeah, I think that was about it. Um, yeah, that was it. That was it. I worked a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. And I'm working a lot more this week, too. Um, still working some art stuff. I haven't posted on my main uh, account. If you guys aren't following me, at Rick's Random Ramblings on Instagram. Uh, the Dark Knight Rises on, uh, uh, from, from my personal account. Mostly art and superhero-like stuff. Sometimes some magic stuff. I haven't posted anything like that in about a year, but you know what I mean. Um, let's get right into the show. Um, today, Golden Age. Not Golden Age, I'm sorry. Silver Age. We did Golden Age last week. I'm losing my mind. I have the title for the last week's episode. That's like sitting right there on my program that I just need to record. So I looked at it on there on Golden Age. Oh, that's why I just did that. Uh, Silver Age, all day today. And then we'll do art, Artist Spotlight on uh, one, one of my favorite Silver Age artists and just artists in general. I'm going to pick like my top five artists. Jack Kirby. Kyle McFarlane, this guy we this guy we're about to talk about today, goes by the name of Neil Adams. I love his art, fantastic artist. Uh, after that, probably Joe Kubert, then maybe Jim Lee. Yeah, it's probably my top five. I like Jim Lee's art a lot. So um, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna get right into the Silver Age, the sexy Silver Age, as I would call it. All right, give me one sec. And we're back. Um, let's just jump right into the Silver Age of Comics. Um, this is my favorite era of comics. I've probably said that like a hundred times by now, but I like to remind you guys. But uh, anyways. Silver Age of Comics uh, started the debut of Barry Allen, um, who was The Flash in Showcase. And um, there was a common trend with um, all these new characters. Um, like right around like the late 50s, um, it was Barry Allen as The Flash, Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, and uh, Ray Palmer as The Atom. Um, 
they were not um the same as the heroes that came before them. The heroes that came before them were these very uh, strong, very masculine um, superheroes. They were um they had humongous muscles and you know they were just really strong and they beat their ways out of every situation. However, these three uh, new superheroes, and well, new, I guess, you know, they were new for the, for the time, anyways. Um, they were more akin to um, to what what um, Grant Morrison calls the Kennedy Man. Grant Morrison is a very popular comic book uh, writer and um, just a great guy overall. He done some amazing work. We're definitely gonna be talking about him someday, but um. He wrote a book all about spot comics, and what he describes the Kennedy Man is um, the nice guy, the uh, guy that uses his brain or his brawn. Um, he isn't um, covered in muscles and with a hairy chest and all that. He's got more of a build that towards like uh, what a gym gymnastics might have. Um, He's just very, very lean, the kind guy. He's got the beautiful girlfriend, just like JFK. Um, it's so essentially, like, about ninety percent of the superheroes during this time were built around that philosophy, because um, superheroes were were out of uh, out of fair. They weren't they weren't the cool new thing. They were just a relic of the past at this point. So. The writers had to change it up somehow, and they used um, scientists. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of the superheroes on this time were scientists. Um, towards the sixties, um, Marvel eventually made a resurgence, a pretty grand one, I gotta say. Probably, uh, it's probably the reason why I love the um, Silver Age so much because the Marvel superheroes were just so fantastic. So the Golden Age, you have. It's essentially the same thing, you know, uh, uh, the same story with a different character, but with the Silver Age, that's where things begin to get a little more complex, almost soap opera esque. But that's more towards Marvel side. But um, before we jump right into the Marvel thing, though, um, let's talk about the Justice League. Um, I think they debut was nineteen sixty one, because that's right around the same time Fantastic Four debuted. So yeah, about nineteen sixty one. Um, there was a plan by the editor-in-chief with Julius Schwartz, I think his name was, and he got together a, a writer and artist, and they, um, I think it was Carmine Infantino might have been the artist on Justice League originally, but he, um, the two of them created, um, created the Justice League. It was essentially just the, um, just like the Justice Society of America, the first superhero team um, to appear that wasn't the Justice Society or the All-Star Squadron, but n no one really remembers them as much, unfortunately. They're very nice group of uh, superheroes. I like them a lot. Or like the Invaders, which were the Marvel's um, answer to the All-Star Squadron. Um, some great stuff from them. They, uh, they put together Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Barry Allen as The Flash. Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter. 
this is way before Cyborg was a member of the Justice League, let alone even around. That's right, kids. Believe it or not, Cyborg was a Teen Titans back in the day. But um, they put together this team and they teamed up to stop Starro. It was it was really awesome. I, I've read it. Um, you can mostly find reprints of it around um, either on the internet. DC has an app that you can download. They have a bunch of like old school books that you can just sit down and read for free, or you can start like a trial and whatnot and pay for additional stuff. All kinds. It's it's really good. I have the app on my iPad and, and I, I sift through it every now and again, just because you know it's just some nostalgic stuff. But um, in response to that, th- um, this this uh, event's very important because one, this is the first appearance of the Justice League in comic books. Two, it was the first superhero team since the Justice Society. It's a really really popular one. Justice Society is pretty good, but this right here had the um the Big Seven, as they're now known as which were DC's most popular uh, characters. You saw one book. And over at Marvel, uh, they got wind of this, and uh, editor-in-chief Martin Goodwin was not happy about this because Marvel had no answer to it. And so he tasked Dan Lee, who was a writer for uh, Marvel for almost 20 years now. Like 15, yeah, he started in the 40s. Yeah, it's about 20 years now. And he tasked him with um, creating a new superhero team. And his response was the Fantastic Four, which is mm, probably my favorite comic book of all time. It's uh, it's just really great. It's very family-oriented, and I think everyone on some level can relate to the family part of it, the bickering that they do. Um, but Fantastic Four completely changed the name of the game. Unlike other, um, like other titles at the time, the four main characters were not, how should I say, they were very flawed. They were not very perfect in uh, terms of their personality and their um, their physical traits. They were very, um, they were very three-dimensional. That's probably the best way to put it, other than flawed. I think those two terms, I think that really characterizes them very nicely. They, um, all four of them were very distinct. You had Miss Fantastic, who was, um, pretty self-absorbed, kind of didn't really pay attention to anybody other than himself. He's a scientist, and he was kind of, he, I think he was old, he was in his 40s, but yeah, he was pretty old. No other superhero around the time was really like that. He wasn't, usually superheroes are very, like, selfless, and this guy kind of was just like, I want to do science stuff. I'm not really trying to save the world. I'm just trying to experiment. And then you had uh, Sue Storm, who was a woman. Um, I think at the time, at least, Wonder Woman was the only like major uh, superheroine. You also have Black Canary, but she wasn't very popular around this time. She didn't get really popular until the 80s, when she began teaming up with Green Arrow a whole lot, which is pretty unfortunate. I like her character a lot. Um, Black Canary is this chick that can scream. That's her power. She screams. Or sometimes she wears a collar that enables her to have a sonic scream. Depends on which continuity you're talking about. Gotta love DC and the reboots. Jeez, DC, get your stuff together. Anyway, so you had Sue Storm, who was, um, she's very independent, very hard-headed, and um, a very, uh, a very much a go-getter. And then you had her younger brother, uh, Human Torch, who was um, 
named after the original character from Marvel Comics appearing in the Golden Age. Nice, right? Stan, you made a little, little connection there. Gotta appreciate that. He was very hot-headed, very young, and he uh, did not take his job very seriously. But actually, I only I wouldn't say he's really hot-headed. He had a short temper sometimes, but he was very, very relaxed. Like he was just not really worried, well, worrisome. Unlike some other characters, like Mr. Fantastic, who worried a lot about you know whatever it was that interfered with his business. And then you had a thing, who was a big ugly rock monster. These characters, um, they did not get along with each other. Like I said before, they bickered a lot. And during this time, come up with characters didn't really do that. They didn't really do it. Like if Batman came up with a plan on how to beat General Zod, that's the Justice League would just be like, "Yeah, sure, let's go do that." It wasn't like nowadays how um, a Green Lantern would come in and say, "No, I'm going in and I'm going to knock this guy out," completely ignoring Batman's orders or plan or ideas, or Superman being reluctant to um, to go ahead and defeat such a character or whatever it may have been. It was something that was very different for the time. This is why I, I, I love Marvel so much because the characters are so three-dimensional. And when you you can go from reading a DC book to a Marvel book, but I always have had a hard time going from a Marvel book to a DC book unless it's a Batman question or that. Yeah, it's about it. Those are the only two characters that I can actually read from DC without... Reading from DC and going back to Marvel without feeling like, eh, that would compare when you compare the two. I mean, there are, of course there are some exceptions to such things. Um, we'll probably get into them at another time. But during this time, try go ahead and read uh, Justice League number one and then read Fantastic Four number one. The the difference is outrageous and they were made within months of each other there's so like i don't want to say that i mean fantastic four wasn't that complex um especially in its early issues later on however that's when things really start getting rolling however there's extra huspa to it there's like stan lee and jack kirby were on to something when they created these characters together um other than um than the almighty uh Fantastic Four. We also had over at DC side the Elongated Man. Again, was a detective dash scientist. His powers would become very stretchy. He's basically he's basically just Mr. Fantastic except for detective. Um, we have who else do we have from DC? Oh, that's right, Green Arrow. Green Arrow emerged in the fifties. He's also part of that um that late fifties boom. But um, he was more of a Batman knockoff. He didn't really get his own identity till the late 60s, early 70s. From the 50s and the 60s, he was just Batman, except he had he was Arrow-themed. That, that was literally it. He had an Arrow cave, Arrow meteor, a sidekick, the whole shebang. It, it was essentially just re- reading Batman. Like, if you wanted two Batman stories, pick up Batman and pick up Green Arrow, which is a darn shame. I'm very happy about the... Um, revamp they gave him in the late 60s we're totally going to get to that as we uh, I want to move forward in time from the 60s to on um, over at Mar- Marvel really had a humongous resurgence during this time so we're probably going to be a little heavy on them up until I feel like there's something 
that really pops out at me at DC as we move forward throughout the years. But um, Marvel also has Incredible Hulk. Um, you guys probably know him. He's a scientist. Bruce Banner was a scientist who was a kind of a douchebag and very self-centered, very insecure. And he uh, saves the life of a kid and he gets hit with a gamma bomb. And then at night, he turns into this uh, gray monster with an alternate personality, kind of like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Of course, a few a few issues into the run, the initial run, they uh, change it, and now whenever he's stressed out or angered, he turns into the Hulk, and he also changed to green. He was supposed to be gray, but due to some printing errors at the time, um, gray did not appear very nicely in uh, on interiors of comic pages. I cannot remember the reason why. However, I do remember that um, that's the same reason why Iron Man's armor was changed from gray to gold. And speaking of Iron Man, we also have Iron Man. He was a sci—he was a, a scientist mechanic that um, had a heart in heart injury, and he had to save himself. So he built a super armor to save himself. Um, you're probably going to be noticing a common theme with a lot of characters around this time period of 50s and 60s. Their powers are from um, scientific need, scientific scientific means, and they're also. Um, atom bomb related I should say as in uh, a lot of their powers come from reactivity you, know, you get the Hulk, Spider-Man Fantastic Four what's part of the space race all things, all themes that were related to stuff that was happening in the 60's like space race, the atom bomb um, the arms race that's Iron Man essentially it's just the arms race um, all these things, or, or even espionage too, because he also fought a lot of spies, a lot of Russian villains too. If you notice, there's there's a lot of Russian villains um, because of the Cold War that was going on during this time period from what late 40s to early 90s. That's a long time. So you'll be noticing that a lot of villains most mostly come from um, Russia or like was it? I think it was. I don't want to say China, but I think it was China as well. Because I remember Radioactive Man was uh, Chinese. As a god, he was um, he was hit by radioactivity too. Except he was like a giant green glob of radioactive energy. Very weird. It's kind of cool though. Um, you also had Thor, who was a... Um, who was a... Um, Norse God of Thunder. He's based off of the Greek mythology. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, he has a stepbrother named Loki, who was the king of the frost, who was the son of the king of the frost giants, if I'm not mistaken. Um, all kinds of really cool stuff. Um, what, what else do we have there? Over at Marvel, we have Spider Man. I love Spider Man. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yes, there we go. I love Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, it's just a scientist. Again, again, the Kennedy man. His his girlfriend. Well, I wouldn't say girlfriend initially. More like love interest. Was uh, Janet Van Dyne, who becomes the Wasp. Her father, I think, was assassinated or something, or he was being targeted, and so um, she undergoes um, some kind of genetic modification to be able to shrink to the size of a wasp. 
or close enough to it. And he can shrink and grow. That's his power. He can also talk to ants. Very cool. I love Ant-Man. Hank Pym is an amazing character. One of my favorite um, characters in general in all fiction. He's very cool. Um, they were really good. They unfortunately they they first appeared in Tales of uh, Tales to Astonish. Unfortunately, it didn't really last very long. Um, it was canceled, and that's why they must appear in Avengers. And there goes an ex excellent segue for talking about the Avengers. So, as I said earlier, the Fantastic Four was made to combat uh, Justice League over at DC. However, unfortunately, I don't think that you can really make that fair comparison because um, Fantastic Four by themselves are like a team that formed together. They weren't like, like Human Torch, The Thing, Invisible Woman, Mr. Fantastic don't each have their own individual issues, although in later years, unfortunately, they would. Uh, mostly Thing and Human Torch. There are some uh, move gems in those runs, but nothing to write home about. You can certainly get some enjoyment out of them. I know I do sometimes, especially whenever Human Torch fights Pace Pot Pete. He eventually changed his name to the uh, the Trapster. He's a guy that can shoot glue at you. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, the Avengers were all pre-existing characters who united. They first appeared in like the 1963. Um, I love the first like 50 issues. First 50 issues are so vibrant in my mind because I read them like a million times when I was a kid. Especially with Jack Kirby's art. Eventually, he Jack uh, left the book to focus more on Fantastic Four. But um, those first like 50 issues are like fantastic, and even just in general, like it, it, I just really love the Avengers because it's just um, not the initial team. The initial team was uh, Iron Man, um, Ant Man, the Wasp, Thor, and the Hulk. I was very happy to see that Hulk left after issue two because um, it it showed like more realism in a comic book. Like, like even though we were stuck in these like fantastic situations where obviously these things couldn't happen, each character reacted as a human being. Um, they first are united indirectly by Loki, who's trying to. Um, of course, destroy Thor, like he's always trying to. And he accidentally earns the ire of the Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, uh, Ant-Man, and the Wasp. And they all unite to beat him, and I think he just... No, he doesn't get away, does he? I think he does. I can't... It's really funny, because I can't remember what happens at the end of that issue. No, I can't remember. Oops, my bad. Thor, I had to reread it. I haven't read that. Actually, I haven't read Avengers number one in, like... In, like... Maybe 10 years. Jeez. The last time I read it, I think I was still a kid. But, um... They, uh, decided to stay as a team because they, uh... They worked really nicely together. Um, it was actually, um, a wasp idea. You know. Uh, Iron Man, Thor, Hulk, and Hank didn't really care. But they eventually were like, yeah, you know what? Why not? However, um... I do remember Hulk's last line was, I pity the guy who tries to go up against us. That line always cracked me up. He was like, everyone had like a little one-liner, and that was Hulk's. And I think Hulk's had had the best one. 
And Iron Man was just like, yeah, sure. But um, in the next issue, it, it's really funny because um, in every, like, two issues during the first – for, like, the first ten issues, in every two issues, Iron Man has a new set of armor. I wish I was joking. He goes from that um, that golden armor to the armor with the um, with the pointed tops to the armor where with the pointed tops but like a different like design, and then finally goes to the classic armor that um, he used from the late the mid '60s all the way to like what 1988. It's the classic one that resembles the uh, the armor he wore in uh, Endgame, and it's uh. It's just really funny because some of the issues end in a cliffhanger, and then the next issues has got a new set of armor, even though it takes place just moments after the previous issue. So it leaves you a little confounded, especially at the end of like I think issue was it, I think it was two to three, is like immediately afterwards, and Iron Man's got a new set of armor. There's no explanation for it, and it's just really funny, and it, it's not something that. Like irks me. It's that it's just something I laugh at because I guess uh, Stan and Jack thought that no one would notice, or maybe it was just like something that just they just like forgot about. I don't know. And just like went over their heads. But um, Hulk eventually leaves, um, and I love that because they fight this shapeshifter uh, called the Space Phantom. And he takes Hulk's form and begins beating the snot out of um, each of the Avengers. And uh, when he shapeshifts into someone different, uh, and his power, I should probably talk about his powers first. Okay, Space Phantom um, is a shapeshifter, right? Except when he takes your form, you go to limbo. And as long as he's in your form, you're in limbo. And it's not until he takes on someone else's form or chooses to let go of the for current form he's in that you come back to limbo. So uh, what he would do, what he did was he first replaced the Hulk, attacked the Avengers, then replaced. I think it was, I think it was Iron Man first. Iron Man, I mean Iron Man next, and then Ant Man, Dash Giant Man, and then eventually tries to do a Thor. However, when he does it with Thor. There is a key word in the very beginning of the issue um, where Space Phantom announces what kind of powers he has. He says, I can take on the form of any mortal. Um, he tries to take on the form of Thor, but because Thor is immortal, its effect rebounds. And Space Phantom himself stays stuck in limbo. And when um, Wasp asks Thor, like, what's going to happen to him? And he's like, he's going to come back when he changes to someone else. And then Iron Man's like, but wait a minute, he can't. And then Thor's like, I, because he's uh, he, he'll stay stuck in there forever. And just like, oh shoot, that's really cool. But the point is, um, each of the Avengers did not take a second to think about um, just not attacking the Hulk. Like each of them, each of them like reacted in such a way where like they were like, I always knew we couldn't trust in you, or you're too powerful and you're too. Um, too much of a loose cannon to be let to be left alone. And when Hulk heard those things, he realized the Avengers truly don't trust him. And that's something that that's exactly how the Hulk would act and should act. I I feel. I think that's staying true to your character. Something that's an ongoing theme on this podcast. <coughs> Excuse me. Um. 
topics. I mean, it's an ongoing theme in this podcast, and I feel like it's something that I just need needs to keep on being addressed, just in case there's some fellow writers out there that are trying to do some kind of great uh, trilogy or saga or epic. So please stay true to your characters, because Stanley did, and um, he leaves, and along the way they find the Submariner, and he teams up, and they try to stop um, the Avengers. Of course, they don't win. But um, along the way, they find Captain America, and that's how Captain America is introduced to the Avengers. Um, the Earth's, the ba- Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes cartoon from 2010 portrays this fantastically. They swap out Space Panther for Enchantress, but um, the effect is still there. I kind of wish it was Space Panther, but I guess it just brings everything to full circle. But you know, what else can you do? But um, yeah, it was really cool. Eventually. Uh, Captain America joins there, and that initial team, uh, Cap, Iron Man, I don't know, that team's alright. Um, it, it, I really do like that Captain America's so unsure about what he wants to do with his life, and he's kind of, um, he's kind of like all over the place. Um, like, he even says, like, I, something, like, I kind of wish I stayed in the ice or I had died, because I'm in the world that's, if the world continued without me and now I'm behind and everyone that I know is like now older he bumps into like bumps into a police officer who's um across it's cross guard and um the officer uh tries to stop him from crossing the street because the cars are coming and then he realizes Captain America and like he begins crying he's like I remember reading about you when I was a kid I I, I mourned your loss and you're alive I can't believe it and Cap's like yeah and it's like he begins to doubt himself, and that's something that I just really love. Like it was like some like little things like that that really gave um, Marvel books an edge over the DC books. You didn't see anything like that over at DC, especially especially not during this time. You didn't see anything about like that from DC until like I don't know, like up until maybe like twenty years ago. To be honest, it wasn't like. You didn't see that kind of character development. Maybe you saw it with a few select writers over at DC. There were some Batman stories that did it really nicely. There were um, a few Green Lantern stories that did it pretty nicely. But it wasn't anything like concrete like that. Like a writer like Jeff Johns, he knows how to do that most definitely. But there were a lot of writers out there during this time that didn't really do it. But then again, most of the comics were geared towards children. They weren't really geared towards adults because the comics code authority limited to what could be shown in the comic and what couldn't be. So, obviously, a lot of a lot of the stuff shown in the comics were more like PG rated. So, what what uh, adult would be reading this? So, I think it's fine for the stories to be so simple. And that's probably why a lot of the a lot of the comics really were. However, um, I don't know. It's it just it's just an extra bonus that some of them were like multi-layered. You know, there was more to them than we all just like think. You know, but um, nonetheless, enough of that Avengers rant. We could probably talk about the Avengers some other time. Let's keep on moving forward. Uh, let's talk about some X Men. Uh, I love X Men a lot, so I'm probably gonna rant about this for at least like 20 minutes. No, I'm kidding. Um, I love X Men. It's just um. I've talked about this before. Obviously, I love X-Men to death. Um, they're just... Uh, I feel like anybody anybody who's an outcast 
um, can definitely relate to them because that's essentially what the X-Men are. They are uh, outcast. And um, they are... They're something that uh, that everyone can enjoy, I think. They, um, they're a group of people who are born different from others, and they're hated because of it. And that really, I think that really drives home to a lot of us. Um, I understand it myself, but it's a little bit different from the crowd. It was considered nerd and geek, uh, mostly throughout my middle school early years. And um, it's like they're trying to save a world that thinks that they're freaks and uh, or dangerous. And it's as, as something that's really, um, that really drives home. However, there's an issue with these uh, Silver Age X-Men books. They weren't, they didn't really focus on that. They, they like, they talked about it more than they showed it. Like the first, uh, like the first like 60 issues weren't, I mean, they are a joy to read. I do enjoy them. I, I love X-Men, so I'm a bit biased on that. But if we're really being honest, they're not that good. The first, like, I want to say the first five issues are fantastic. Like, uh, right right off the gate. Like, those are amazing. And then you get uh, issues like six to, like, uh, 50 that are just pretty much eh. Like, one of my favorite issues is, like, issue 38 because they start making the new costumes. Or is it 39? Yeah. It's not very good. I can't remember. That almost never happens to me with X-Men. But it's a... Uh, that's a really cool cover, first of all. Um, Cyclops in the forefront shooting Octoblast with his new blue and yellow costume with Marvel Girl and the rest of them on the side. And uh, it's like a landmark issue. It's like, here we are, new costumes. Although personally, they probably should have gotten some new costumes in like issue four. Or no, issue five. Issue five when they graduated. Because Professor X fi- finally like let them go out and fight crime without his supervision, without him having to keep tabs on him 24-7. Because the first four issues, that's exactly what he did up until he get, goes into a coma. Um, there's a common theme with the early X-Men books with uh, Professor Xavier becoming incapacitated by any means, whether it be a supervillain poisoning him, him just having a stroke, him being kidnapped. There are like all these things. Like I don't know if that's like that was just a coincidence that every writer thought that Professor Xavier should be incapacitated. Very similar to how the movies are. Um, if you notice in all three of the X-Men films, Professor Xavier is like incapacitated in some way. The first one he's poisoned, the second one being mind-controlled and kidnapped, and the third one he just dies. So I, that's why I, I love those films, just because of that little thing. Like the other things, the films are a little bit better. But it's just really, really funny that he's like never around to actually like help them. Like in the beginning of the issues, like in the beginning of every issue, usually begins with Professor Xavier training them, and then like they learn like a lesson, but then don't really like following the lesson. Like they hear what he's saying, but they're not really like paying attention to it. Then by the end of the issue, you're like, oh, that's what Professor Xavier meant, and it kind of just goes like that. I feel like the problem with the early X Men books was they didn't really see the discrimination of mutants really. It was kind of just like, eh, like. Yes, they are they are different, but we don't really see the discrimination, except for like one scene in like issue four where um Toad gets attacked 
he's he's in this, he's he's in disguise pretending to be um an Olympic like jumper like you know people that jump on the poles to get jump really high um because his mutant powers are jump really high um a mob attacks him and like that's like the only instance you really see it other than like issue eight where I think it was Iceman and Beast were attacked and they um a mob just like forms around and starts attacking them which was kind of funny and Beast is like I'm out of here I quit the X-Men because he felt like they were being like humans are being ungrateful I think the best part about uh, the early issues was really the feud between Magneto and Professor Professor Xavier um especially when he explains like their origin story he's like we used to be friends and we both had the same goal but we took a really drastic turn like Professor Xavier is more akin to um, Martin Luther King Jr. Whereas Magneto is more akin to Malcolm X. As a kid, I thought I was a genius when I figured that out. I was like eight. And I told my classmates about it. And like the jaws all dropped. And my teacher was just like laughing. And I thought I was like top of the class. But um, it was something that was like really cool. I thought. like, um, And the really cool part about Magneto was he wasn't. He only tried to kill like the X-Men like once. Like, other than that, he wasn't, like, he's not trying to, like, hurt them. He's just trying to get them to join him. And I really do love his, like, brotherhood of uh, mutants. I love how he doesn't call them evil. He calls them just the brotherhood. But everyone else calls them the brotherhood of evil mutants. Which I th- I, th- I think that's kind of, like, an interesting little, like, tidbit there, you know. It's something, something that's, like, really cool. Um, and speaking of X-Men, um... Doom Patrol is an incredibly uh, similar title, almost in in almost every way. Um, both books are, um, in both books, our protagonists are portrayed as outcasts and hated by society. In both books, the uh, teens have a uh, have a mentor that's confined to a wheelchair, and they, the two books came out within months of each other. So it's just it's just a huge coincidence. I love Doom Patrol. I think they have some great stories. I feel like some of the best stories came from the 90s when they uh, revamped them. Because, um, unfortunately, like X-Men, the book wasn't insanely popular with fans. Uh, the, the general public, I'm sure the diehard fans love Doom Patrol like myself. Um, the main problem with it being, I guess, so inconsistent. Because I think, like, like X-Men, Doom Patrol was also bi-monthly. So that means it came out every two months. Because the way comics are are, are released are uh, uh, bi um, biweekly, which is every two weeks, so that's essentially just twice a month. Um, monthly, which is once a month, and then uh, biweekly, no, bimonthly. I'm sorry, every two months. That's uh, biweekly twice. Oops, I apologize. Um, it's something that kind of like sucks because they're um they were like really good books, and I guess they didn't sell as good as like. Avengers or Justice League or Spider-Man. So instead, you're kind of trapped in a spot where, well, we're trying to improve our our title, but we only get like four, like like five or six chances uh, a year to do so. So what do we do? You know, and that's kind of sucks. So eventually, like I think X-Men lasted just a little while longer than Doom Patrol, like maybe like ten issues. But eventually, Doom Patrol was killed off, unfortunately. It was such a shame because I really, really loved the team. But eventually, they did come back. Don't worry. Don't die. At the time, 
I'm sure everyone's probably freaking out. Um, the core lineup is like just a just a team of three people without the mentor, who is a guy that may or may not have pa- have had powers. But yeah, Negative Man is my favorite, one of my favorite DC characters. He's this really wacky guy with a um, he's covered in bandages because his body's like radioactive, and he can create like a uh, I don't know how to describe it, like a second version of himself that's like made of energy, and you can't be away from it for more than like five minutes. His true body, it's like he separates his body from like his spirit energy form, and you can't be more than a, I think one hundred yards from his body, and he can't um can't stay away from it for more than five minutes. He's really, he's like really powerful. It's like really strong. Shoot energy blast, go through walls. He's really cool. There was also a robot man, who was a. What was he? He was a race car driver that got into a serious accident. It's really funny because they're, um. Their uh, civilian lives were like so varied. Uh, Negative man was a uh, was an Air Force pilot. You had a uh, robot man who was a, uh, NASCAR driver got into a serious car accident and his brain never reflected it. Was put into a robotic, uh, shell. And you had, I think her name was Elastigirl. She was a actress who was affected by some kind of chemical, and she was uh, she can like stretch, I think, or she's just really big. I can't remember which one it is, but um, yeah, the team was just really diverse, a lot of fun, really wacky stories. When you think about Silver Age sexiness, definitely think about Green Betray. The art is very pulpy, very it is very definition of what a Silver Age book is. Or was. Um, other than that, as we move forward, um, what else do we have? As we move forward, oh, Daredevil. Oh man, how can I forget about Daredevil? Probably because he was kind of late to the party. He didn't develop until like 1964, 1965. Um, cover the first issue's cover art was done like Jack Kirby, so that's really cool. Um. He, I, I love Daredevil. That first issue is just like golden. It's perfect in every way. That's how I want every origin origin um book to like go. It's like it's got some really solid pacing. You watch him grow up. You watch him from the time he's a kid to the time he's like an adult. And um, he's just a blind guy that um, he's not blind. Well, no, he was born. He's born a regular guy. As blind as as a kid, as a teenager, I should probably say. And Begins to fight crime after his dad's killed by a mob, because his dad was supposed to um. He was was supposed to like throw a game, and unfortunately, Matt, Daredevil, was in the crowd, and his dad was like, "No, uh, it won't be in front of my son, because I want to make my son proud." Because um, unfortunately, um, Matt's father is a widow. His name's Baron Jack Murdoch. Really cool name. He's a boxer, and um. He uh, instilled this great sense of like greatness in his son. Like he was like, you have to become completely better than I am. You need to break the cycle that uh, that our family has always had. Like my father wasn't much, and I'm not much, but I have you, and you can become something that's far greater than me. And when you succeed, I succeed. When I succeed, you succeed. It was kind of like it. It was like one page of him talking about it. And it was like, it was just really cool. It was like a true, 
like father son moment and like this this guy spent every like every second with his son like when he wasn't working he was like making sure he was on his studies and he was like no um no sports no athletics he was like you're just gonna study and like go to college and become something that i'm not and there's like something i feel like that's something else that can also drive home in some people you know something that's very like relatable and something that's very like that's somewhat, somewhat inspiring like this is a really just really happy moment and it's such a shame because of the ending issue obviously his dad dies and the issue ends on such like a sad note but still a little hopeful because matt eventually becomes daredevil to avenge the death of his father and to just help protect hell's kitchen because he lives there literally a lot of marvel characters live over in new york city the majority of them like 99.9 percent of them unless it's somewhere in outer space um we also had the um original guardians of the galaxy that's pretty cool i do like me some original guardians of the galaxy um they're just they're just really wacky teams like everybody was from a different planet uh i think charlie 27 was from jupiter um you had uh yondu i think he was from uranus or something like that or and you also had um oh man i hate that i can't remember his name he was a crystal guy, and he could, like, I think his name, Isaac Crystals, and he was, like, really cool looking. I'm sure, so, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you guys know what I'm talking about. I can't remember his name offhand, because he was, like, a really weird, really weird character. I remember seeing his Heroclix figure, I love Heroclix, but it was, like, translucent and really cool looking. And you also had Major Victory, who was, um, he was, a. Uh, character he was essentially uh, an astronaut who got stuck in outer space and woke up in the year 3000 and um he has to be cast to constantly wear this containment suit or else he'll die because of that i think the atmospheric differences between the 21st century and the 31st or something like that it's really weird it doesn't make any sense it doesn't have to but it's really cool and he also gets a uh, captain america shield and he represents earth and um, they just go on a bunch of wacky adventures they're a really cool team. Um, let's see, Guardians of, Guardians of the Galaxy, late sixties Batman. Yes. So Batman, um, you everyone knows Batman. Batman did amazing in the Golden Age. He, I think he was great in this in the fifties. Other people say not. I don't care. I like Batman. Sixties Batman was great, and then people didn't like sixties Batman. Um, maybe I'm biased. I just love Batman. Batman's just great all around. Anyway, Batman was on the verge of cancellation. They were about to drop him. Because the 60s show, um, Batman 66, starring Adam West and Burt Ward, his title characters, they helped boost the character's popularity. But then the show ended, and sales declined. And nothing really was saving it. So they threw Danny O'Neill and um, Neil Adams to try to shake something up. So their plan was, of course, the legendary um, putting the dark back in the dark night. They they took away all that 60s TV show nonsense and the 50s um, scientific nonsense and just went right back to his roots. He's back with solving crimes, kicking butt. Beating the snot out of Joker, who was actually killing people this time again for the first time since 
1948. Jeez. It is great. It's fantastic. It's the run only lasts like 20 issues, but it is amazing. The first issue he fights Man Bat and jeez. Neil Adams art is fantastic. We're going to get to that in the art spotlight today. But he's a fantastic artist. Just look up his art like right now. Um what else do we have? Late 60s Batman, which is great. First appearance of Razal Ghoul was in there and Talia. But that kind of ages into Bronze Age. We're not going to get too much into that. But the Green Arrow and um, Green Lantern team-up books. So remember earlier I told you guys that Green Arrow was essentially just a knockoff of Batman for the first like 15 years of his uh, of his existence, right? That all changed in the late 60s, early 70s. Someone, uh, was it? Danny O'Neill, he also wrote. It might have been Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams who or Daniel all in that book, because they were just a great duo. Because those guys are fantastic. They just took they took Green Arrow and completely changed his character. They gave him the classic yellow beard that he's got in the current comics. I don't he don't think he has anymore because New Fifty Two Rebirth nonsense and Arrow nonsense, what whatever. They took that look. They gave him the um, the uh, the cl- the classic costume you know today with like the little V or V with design on it, and they took Green Lantern and they took the two of them and made a fantastic book because Green Lantern was also not set in late sixties. They introduced Guy Gardner and John Stewart in a matter of like fifteen issues just to try to replace him. It did not work. No one really cared about it, but this book right here was great. You had Green Arrow, who is now portrayed as a liberal, with Green Lantern, who is portrayed as a conservative, just taking a tour around America, just just hanging out, seeing what's going on. And it dealt with some very serious social issues. It was great all around. Now, this, although this book started in the 60s, in the Silver Age, it doesn't end until the end of Bronze Age. So we might come back to it, but this kind of blends in, so just keep on going with it. We'll definitely talk about some more in the Bronze Age, though. It was just fantastic. Um, they, uh, their personalities were so different. They, um, like their political views really shaped their characters. You know, because you had um, uh, Hal Jordan works for the military, so of course he's going to side with the military on most of the subjects. They battled racism. They battled um, xenophobia. They battled uh, drugs. That was even a big thing with um, when Green Arrow walking on Speedy, uh, taking drugs. That was a sidekick. Jeez, that my sidekick was a junkie. It's a great issue. It's it's essentially just Green Arrow bashing Speedy the entire time. Um. What else do we have during that time? Oh, um, Green Arrow destroying Green Lantern's lantern, uh, power battery. That's a great one too. That cover is amazing. He's like, it's no more. Green Lantern has to die. They're just so many great things. All Neil Adams covers too. That's how you know they're great. Yeah, those are those those are some of the top books. Um, during this time, also the first appearance of Galactus, that's like a completely amazing saga. Um, Free Scroll War doesn't start till it starts 
no, I think it was Bronze Age actually. Never mind. That's what we'll get to that. But yeah, talk about that some other time. Just great stuff overall. And unfortunately, Silver Age had to come to an end. Like all great things to start with. It ended with uh, a three-part Spider-Man saga. Um, Gwen Stacy was missing, and Spider-Man had to go find her. Gwen Stacy was Spider-Man's current girlfriend throughout the 60s. And we found out that Green Goblin knows secret identity, kidnapped Gwen, and had her, I think, was in the Brooklyn Bridge? The George Washington Bridge. And he drops her, and Spider-Man tried to save her, and he she died. He uh, spun his webs to catch her feet, but it didn't really work. He died and killed her, unfortunately. But, um, unfortunately, um, most people call that the end of the Silver Age because that was a really dark thing to do. Most of the time, major, at least in the Silver Age, a lot of characters were not killed off. Like, major key characters were not really killed off. I mean, Captain Stacy did die, but he was a character you saw on and off, right? Gwen Stacy was, like, in every other issue. And after she died, it kind of caused this ripple within the comics medium. Everyone else was going to do this dark, gritty take on each of the characters. And it was, uh, it had some lasting effects. Just leave it at that. Um, that about does that make that just about does it for the Silver Age. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna do some other spotlight on Neil Adams. spotlight um we have uh, neil adams an incredibly popular comic book artist um he was very well known for his um modern take on both batman and green arrow and um just his art in general um why he's so significant um probably because he was the first comic book artist to bring uh, proper anatomy to the uh, to the medium. Um, he was born way back in 1941. He's a bit up there in age, um, as you could kind of imagine. But um, he graduated from college and everything, got his bachelor's degree in art and like marketing and whatnot. And he immediately went to apply for DC Comics all the way back in 1960. Um, they didn't like his art, which is very hard to believe because um, he's a he's a very, very good artist. Um, so instead he went to uh, Archie to try to find some work there. Because Archie at the time also had some superhero books um, that you, you don't really see too many of those anymore. They had this superhero called The Fly. He's bas- that's, that's basically his namesake. Um, anyway, uh, he went to Archie to do that strip, but they weren't, um, they, um, 
they weren't a big fan of his art there either. Instead, they put him on the, uh, I think just the, the mainline Archie books. That way he could, um, he could get some work there. At least to give him something, because he was a very fine artist at the time. And um, he, uh, he then realized a few days later when he came back with the pencils for the next Archie book, he realized that one of his panels from, because um, he had left the, uh, the pages of um, The Fly on uh, Joe Simon's desk, who was the editor at the time, for th- those books. And uh, one of the panels from one of the pages was missing. And Joe explained that um, the other guys weren't so happy with the way that the current artist on the book uh, drew it, so they took Neil Adams' um, art instead. And uh, that's what kind of uh, catapulted him to uh, comics in general. So he did some... Um, he began. He did some little things for them. It was like it wasn't anything heavy. It was just panels and covers and the like. And um, eventually, he uh, he left because um, the pay wasn't that great. The pay was uh, I think nine dollars. I think it was nine dollars a week, something like that. However, he did talk say say it was a great experience. So I guess it kind of levels out. But it was um. It was kind of a shame, but I guess it was kind of for the best because uh, he ended up going back to marketing and commercial art, which is what he went to school for in the first place. And um, he did some really great stuff there. He worked on um, mostly just posters and stuff like that, advertisements, you know, typical commercial art stuff. Eventually, he uh, got his big break over at DC. because they were looking for uh, a few artists to do some um, very under, how can I say, very, I don't know, like new characters like uh, Dead Man and Brave and the Bold, and he was an artist for hire, so um, he got his, uh, his sort of real, like heavy stuff while he was doing um, like a regular book over there. He started off in Strange Adventures number 207. That's one of the earliest um, of his DC covers. He mostly did cover art during this time. And uh, it was just a very... His, his art was very, like I said earlier, very, I don't want to say realistic, but like a stylized version of realism, I guess. would probably m- make the most sense. Um, but please look up uh, Strange Avengers number 207. It's a fantastic cover. It's got Dead Man at the forefront and um, a bunch of other faces in the background, all in like different types of shades and tints of green. It's very cool. I very like it a lot. Um, so he did a lot of stuff like that, a lot of covers and like short stories and um, horror stuff because he, he's actually very good at horror because Dead Man, of course, is the suspense horror type of guy. Um, eventually. Um, he got some uh, work on the Brave and the Bold, and um, he became very well known for that uh, that small little run. And he also did a little bit of Superman. It was Action Comics number three fifty six, or sixty seven. That's pretty cool. I actually didn't know that he did Superman up until like a few days ago. I think that's kind of cool. And he also did a uh, 
some Lois Lane book, but we don't no one really talks about that too much. And also did he also did a little bit of Elongated Man for a little while. I think that might have been like one or two issues. And then he also did um, some more of Brave and the Bold in between and some Lois Finest. All scattered throughout the late sixties because he was most prominent in comics in the late sixties, early seventies. Eventually he kind of just got tired of comics and he showed up for a guest appearance, but also just did covers and character designs and the like. Which I think, I don't know. I feel like so as as the older you get when you're in the comic book industry, you kind of become a little worn out. Like the, the job kind of gets to you, especially when you're an artist. You're pumping out, especially if you're pumping out like two or three books a week or a month. I mean, um, that's, uh, that's a lot of work. And not that the pay was ever like necessarily bad it's just you could you could do better than what you're getting right now if that makes sense it's it's not like it's it's nothing fantastic you're just the the greatest thing about working in this industry is that you 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 love what you're doing like you have such a passion for this that the pay is like a bonus for you doing this. You're getting paid to do something that you do love. So I, I think that's I think that's like the general assessment for most uh most artists and writers in the comic book industry. They kinda go in knowing it's not gonna be like anything fantastic. It's just gonna be just right, you know. But um he uh, ought he also wait, did he no, never mind. Sorry, I was gonna say, did he do uh, Adam Strange? I don't think he did. Uh, Adam Strange is the guy from I think the future or a different planet, and he's got like a jetpack and a ray gun. He's a really cool character. He, he's again a fine definition of the Silver Age uh, superhero. But um, eventually he. Uh, he went back to school, I believe, to do uh, more photorealism, and eventually he began incorporating that into his comic book art. Very fine stuff, I think. Um, and he was also one of the main guys um, on X-Men. He did a lot of X-Men covers. Um, I think it was X-Men, I think, I want to say, because he, he did do freelance for a little while. He wasn't, like, concrete with DC, it was more like a contract type of thing, and after that ended, he kept on bouncing around, but I I think it was X-Men 58 to 63, I think, because the title began to wane at the time, in the late 60s, but my, my favorite Neil Adams cover is definitely the Havoc cover, like that's, that's without a doubt the best one, there's no, there's no doubt in that, but um, he also did a little bit of a Fantastic Four, and yeah, I think he and he also penciled. There we go, Fantastic Four, number fifty six or sixty five. There we go, there we go. I found it. I had to look it up real quick. Um, yeah, and uh, Dennis o Dennis O'Neill. There we go. I was about to get into how he and Dennis O'Neill met. They met on the uh, final, like, two X-Men uh, stories. And um, Denny O'Neill, he would have a uh, 
bit of a partnership that lasted throughout the years that was uh, would eventually become one of the most legendary like duos like ever. It's a shame it didn't last as long as it did. But um, he also does some Avengers covers, all fantastic stuff. But let's go. Let's get into his Batman stuff. That stuff's all like precursor to like is him getting into the industry. But as soon as he got into Batman, that's that's when things really start to uh, start to get like really heavy. But um, so the um, DC's editor in chief at the time, um, Julius Schwartz. He wanted to um, to revive Batman. He wanted to bring Batman back to his roots, and he uh, he tasked Dennis Dennis O'Neill, or Denny O'Neill, to um to do this, and uh, he chose the artist to be uh, Neil Adams because um, they worked previously with each other before. He had a little bit of experience. He figured that his uh, his realistic drawings were were similar to realistic or I don't know like an exaggeration of realistic art whatever you want to call it would be a great feel for this new Batman because he wanted to bring Batman back to the dark roots so they uh, they came together and um, they I think they started in Pepper Comics and then they moved into the mainline Batman stories and you do know it was Batman um, was it 219? And eventually, they moved back to the the detective comics. I can't say detective. And uh, they co-created Man Bat and Ra's Al Ghul and Talia Al Ghul. Fantastic characters, all in their own right. I love Ra's Al Ghul. Very cool character. A little too mystical, but that's fine. I, I don't mind it. And uh, Man Bat, he was a childhood favorite of mine. I always wanted this action figure. I never got around to. And um, they created this legendary like. It was a four or five uh, issue story arc about the um, the demon, you know, uh, Ghul. That's like an alter ego, and eventually about his daughter, where Robin gets kidnapped, and there's this whole like mystery surveying. Those covers are all fantastic, by the way. Um, they also they also uh, rev- revived the uh, Two Face and the Joker, and they brought back the Joker back to his homicidal. Uh, tendencies of killing people and just causing mass chaos. I feel like without them, I don't think the Joker would have gotten to the point where he's at now. I don't think that he um, would have gone back to his original roots from the Golden Age. So thank goodness for them. But this right here would eventually, was this, 1970? Yeah, 1970. So this is essentially just like the, uh, the Bronze Age at this point. But nonetheless, it still stands. A whole generation of of uh, readers grew up with the Joker being a prankster. Uh, that makes me a little sad, but it's okay because some of those stories are pure gold. We talk about them sometimes. Um, eventually, they um, they they uh, they were pulled off the Batman book, let someone else take over the reins. They'd done it long enough, two three years. That's enough. Eventually, they went into the Green Arrow, Green Lantern. Um, was it, uh, I don't know how to call it. Green Lantern, Green, Lan- Green Arrow, Green Lantern uh, duo feature, or even a bull type thing. It's a fantastic book. This right here, the um, it's just Green Arrow and Green Lantern teaming up and just going on this um, road trip all across America to go find America. That, that that's all it is, and it's some of the greatest things ever. They they reintroduce uh, Green Arrow. 
you know, the one with the beard and the one with, like, the little hat that we're also accustomed to from the Justice uh, Unlimited animated series. Um, they made uh, Green Arrow become a, a, this liberal um, freedom uh, fighter, whatever you want to call it, uh, a character. And then you had Green Lantern, which is really conservative, uh, military-esque type guy. And it's just, their, their interactions are just golden. I've read most of the series. I've not finished them, unfortunately. One day, I will get around to it. But the art is absolutely outstanding. The um, My favorite issue... My, my three favorite issues are actually I own one of them. The uh, the three that I love the most though are the the one where um Green Lantern's trying to recite the um the oath and uh, Green Arrow shooting the the um his lantern and it's just it's just really cool. He's like never again. It's a great cover. It's all in like tints and shades of green, so that's what makes it even like better. Ah, oh, here it is. So I have the cover too. Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow. There we go. Um, that was Green Arrow dash Green Lantern, uh, number seventy-six. So April nineteen seventy. That's not bad. Nineteen seventy. Not bad. Um, the other uh like legendary cover is the uh my sidekick is a junkie uh cover. I'm sure um most Green Arrow fans do know this cover. It's um, where Green Arrow and Green Lantern are walking around speeding, um, using heroin. It's a great cover. It's a great story. Um, that's the one I do not have. I don't have either of these two. But the third one, the one where um, Green, I think it was Green Arrow is um, tied up at uh, on the Native American Reserve. And they're about to burn him. I do have that cover. That's another fantastic cover. Just It looks really gritty, really dark. It's just, It's really cool. I like it a lot. I think those three are probably my favorite covers from this era of uh, Green Arrow and Green Lantern. I really do wish he did some more of them. Eventually, uh, he uh, they left the, the book, but it was um, it was essentially just a social commentary. They talk about racism. They talk about uh, government conspiracies, um, minimum wage, a bunch of like random like wacky stuff. It's it's really cool. Um. And I really do like that, the name of that story. No evil shall escape my sight. It's it's a si- it's basically just a season, just series finale. It was number eighty nine. A shame that was only nineteen seventy two. Looking at it now, but those um, those are some great uh, those are some great stories. Yeah, I was just gonna say I kind of wish it lasted longer. But then again, some of the best things in life are short and sweet, so. What else can we do? Um, let's see. Oh, yes. Drug addiction, overpopulation. I'm looking at uh, the synopsis for it now. Well, th- there was a lot of re- really, really deep stuff in here. And I'm really surprised that they were allowed to publish like, all the stuff with the Comics Code Authority running around there because of um, they had very sensitive topics. But um, it's just that's, a, that's a really interesting thing. Like, they weren't shut down or that... Uh, the print run wasn't limited or anything. That's just that's pretty cool. But anyway, after uh after that, um Neil Adams eventually went to uh a bunch of random titles. He would do covers and some one shots here and there. It's kinda funny, he stopped working like heavily in the comics media. By nineteen seventy eight he was uh he was done. 
the last um the last full story arc he did was um uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. It's a very popular story. It's about Superman Muhammad Ali trying to box and then fighting aliens afterwards. Um and this that that's really about it. He just designed costumes and covers after that, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, since then he's just kind of been around. He does covers sporadically now and then. He did a cover for a DC Rebirth. It's a Batman book. I think it's number sixteen. It's a very nice cover. He st- he hasn't lost his touch. And uh, yeah, that that that's about it. I also noticed he is going blind a bit. He was complaining about it during his um during one of his cons. It's kind of funny because um, when you when you take a glance at what he did, like if you're like if you don't really delve really deep into uh, into his work, it seems like he didn't really do much, and like in terms of like 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 work. But then but then once you consider the time period that all these all the stuff took place, it really makes you sit back and think, wow, that's that's huge. Like making they're making Batman dark again. That that was humongous. That was a huge. That's a huge thing at the time. He was campy throughout the nineteen sixties for the longest time. And the TV show definitely didn't help him. You got the Green Arrow, Green Lantern stuff, the social commentary. That was also huge. No other comic book was doing that at the time. Not not, not even that Marvel was doing that. I mean, they did touch upon the um, the drug habit thing, but we'll get into that a little later with the, in the Spider Man book. But. He does some pretty serious stuff. Um, he's one of my favorite artists. Co- if you wanted to, collecting his um, all of his cover art and uh, work isn't very hard. It's about no, I don't, don't want I don't want to say like seventy issues, but like it's about yeah, maybe a little less than that. Did some X Men, some of the Batman, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Muhammad Ali special. It's not bad. One of my favorite artists. I think he's a very um. I think he's pretty legendary. He's probably my f- my, f- my second favorite uh, artist over in the Silver Age. Got some really nice stuff. But um, I think yeah, I think that's that's about it for artist spotlight today. Um, I'm gonna take another quick break and then we're gonna take care of some housekeeping, and uh, we'll be right back. First, uh, um, want to apologize um, for the inconsistency of um, these past few episodes. Um, my work schedule was off the walls. It's been about, I think, two weeks as of this recording since my last uh, episode aired. Um, work's been um, driving me off the walls and uh, I'm pulling in some of those big boy hours at work. I've had everything, most most of the stuff recorded. I uh, just haven't had a chance to to edit it or um, go back and make sure that I have everything uh, somewhat similar to the way I wanted it. Uh, not only that, um, when 
I was recording the uh, the second part of this uh, episode about the Silver Age, I uh, forgot to turn on the mic, and uh, I spent about an hour talking to the air, and that was a uh, was very discouraging. So um, I was like, ah, I'll get to it eventually, and I, I didn't really get to it until like right now. So I apologize for that. Um, we should be okay. Holiday season's very iffy on my job. We're 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 incredibly hot and cold. When it's busy, it's busy. When it's when it's dead, it's dead. So hopefully after the holidays, everything will come in smooth and even out. Um. Okay, follow me on Instagram at Rick's Random Ramblings. Usually I'll post updates for this podcast. You can also follow me at my uh, personal account, The Dark Knight Rises. It's a um, it's uh, mostly where I post pictures of art. That's about it. Art. Um, next week, I'm probably gonna move on to the Bronze Age. Um, got some very good books in there. Fantastic art, as always. You guys know how much I love my art. Um, great writing. Um, yeah, and then maybe also do an artist spotlight one. Uh, Bronze Age uh, artist. Probably gonna be Frank Miller because I like Frank Miller a lot. Yeah, I th- I think that just about does it for this week. Uh, question of the week: um, What is your guy's favorite Silver Age uh, superhero and why? Um, personally, mine's probably hmm, probably the no. You know what? I don't think I know. I don't think I have a favorite. I just love the Silver Ages in general. I think. Because I, I guess if I had to pick one title, hmm. I don't know. I wonder which one I would pick. There's too many. I just love Silver Age in general. I suppose Captain Marvel. Yeah, Captain Marvel probably. And um, not not DC's Captain Marvel, but uh, Captain Marvel, the alien from outer space that was Kree. I think I'd probably pick him because um, I like his costume. Um, for those guys who uh. Who don't know what he looks like? Please Google him. His uh, 1960s appearance was um was very similar to how Buzz Lightyear looks. It's kind of funny. Um, I really do like that book a lot. We've talked about Captain Marvel before on this channel. Um, I I love Captain Marvel. He's had some pretty good stories. Art was always fantastic. I like that sci-fi feel to him. That's probably it. All right. Uh, I think that about does it for this week's episode. I think I've rambled on long enough about the Silver Age and art and the like. All right, guys, folks, I'll see you. Uh, see you next week, hopefully.